Hi, everyone, and welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Grace Porter, and I'm a medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. As a future pediatrician, I'm delighted to be here today to discuss an important issue. I'm joined by Dr. Narupna Sharma, who is a pediatric hospitalist and the Division Chief of Hospital Medicine at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Sharma. It's great to be here, Grace. So the birth of a newborn baby is a very exciting time for families. For pediatricians, it's always a joyful event to send home a healthy infant from the hospital after delivery, but there are many important things to discuss, review, and educate before doing so. That's right, Grace. The amount of information that a pediatrician must review can be overwhelming in the newborn nursery. So we hope today's episode will be both a resource to the parents as well as a refresher for pediatricians on key areas for the care of the newborn. Key areas that we will be discussing today will include sleep safety, environmental safety, feeding of the newborn, neonatal fever and illness exposure, umbilical cord care, and maternal postpartum depression. So let's get started. Let's first talk about sleep safety. It's no mystery that babies sleep quite a bit. Sleeping during early months of infancy occurs around the clock, with the sleep-wake cycle determined by the need to feed, to change diapers, and to be nurtured. When it comes to sleeping safety, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends the back-to-sleep model. Yes, the back-to-sleep model recommends that newborns should sleep on their backs and on a completely flat surface in their own bassinet or crib. Sleeping on the back has been shown to reduce the incidence of sudden infant death syndrome, also known as SIDS and previously known as crib death. Did you know that SIDS accounted for 41% of unexpected deaths among the newborns in 2020, according to the CDC? Wow, so laying a newborn to sleep on their back is a life-saving practice parents should know. And what about other positions for the infant? There's really no exception. This means no side or tummy sleeping. Once the infant is around 7 weeks old, infants may be supervised tummy time during awake hours. This helps promote the strengthening of infant's neck musculature. It's also very tempting to have cute nursery decorations in the crib or the bassinet. But the safest sleep environment is for the infant's bed to be clear of everything except for a fitted sheet. This means there should be no stuffed animals, toys, pillows, or extra blankets in the crib to avoid any chance of suffocation from the infant. Consider swaddling the baby or using a blanket sleeper, which are safer ways to provide comfort with warmth until four months of age. Great tip, Dr. Sharma. It's also important to emphasize that co-sleeping is an absolute no. In other words, under no circumstances should an infant be sleeping in the same bed with another child, parent, or any other individual. Exactly. While it's important for parents to be close to their infant, co-sleeping increases the chances of injury or suffocation to the infant if the adult unintentionally rolls over in their sleep. I recommend instead having the baby's crib or bassinet in the same room as the parent, especially in the early months before the baby is sleeping through the night and until at least six months of age. Okay, this is all super helpful to review. Let's move on and talk about ensuring a safe environment when bringing a newborn home from the hospital. Yes, this is a very important point. Parents should make sure to choose caregivers and visitors wisely. 
It is okay to make sure that every individual who interacts with the infant knows how to properly handle, transport, and soothe the baby. Yes, there may be many individuals eager to hold and snuggle with your newborn baby. But the head is the heaviest part of the newborn, so the head and neck need the most support when holding the baby. And don't forget that babies should never be shaken in any way. Shaken baby syndrome is a type of brain injury that occurs when violently shaking an infant. That's a very important point, Grace. An infant's neck musculature is still developing and the shaking makes the brain bounce back and forth inside the skull, which leads to swelling, bleeding and bruising. This could lead to severe and permanent brain damage and even death. Another important reminder is that any type of secondhand smoke exposure is harmful to the newborn infant. We often think of secondhand smoke from cigarette tobacco smoke, but did you know that aerosols from vapes and e-cigarettes and smoke from marijuana or other smoking products are also harmful to the baby? That's right. For infants exposed to secondhand smoke, there is an increased risk for SIDS, respiratory infections, asthma, ear infections, and impaired lung function. So parents should enforce a strict no smoking or vaping rule in their house, car, or other places the baby frequents. If someone in the household does smoke or vape, they should be at least 20 feet from all entrances to the home where the infant lives when using these tobacco products. The individual who smokes should also change clothes and wash their hands before any interaction with the child. Any individual who smokes or vapes and interacts with the infant should consider sedation for the health of themselves and the infant. We offer the Augusta University Sedation Clinic at our institution, but there is a free national hotline, 1-800-QUIT-NOW, which provides support and resources, including nicotine patches, for those wanting to stop smoking or vaping. There are also phone apps available to help quit. It's also important to remember basic hand hygiene for any individual who interacts with a newborn to lessen the risk of their child contracting an infection. Maintaining safe diapering and infant feeding practices is essential to reduce the spread of germs and prevent children and caregivers from becoming ill. Speaking of caretaker hand hygiene, we should also talk about infant hygiene. When you bring your infant home from the hospital, part of the umbilical cord will often still be attached. This will fall off on its own within one to two weeks. In the meantime, keep the cord dry and clean. Do not apply any alcohol or other substances to the cord. While waiting for the cord to come off, clean your infant using sponge baths and do not give fully submerged baths until after the cord has fallen off. If you do notice that the cord site is becoming red, warm, tender to touch, or with new or worsening discharge, Contact your pediatrician for a visit for evaluation as soon as possible. Okay, so we have hit on some important parts of a safe environment and care for the newborn. But let's shift our attention to nutrition for the newborn infant. Yes, I often have parents ask me, how much should my infant be feeding? How do I know they are getting enough? This can be a very stressful part of caring for the newborn. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends exclusive breastfeeding if possible. Breast milk provides the optimal nutrition that a baby needs and is more easily digested and, of course, readily available and cost-effective. It also contains important antibodies to help fight off infections in those early months before immunizations have been given. Breast milk also promotes healthy brain development. 
Did you know that breastfeeding has been shown to decrease the risk of infection, SIDS, asthma, obesity, and even the development of type 1 diabetes later in life? Wow, that's amazing. So, Dr. Sharma, what about vitamin D? Infants typically receive a prescription for once-a-day vitamin D supplement upon discharge from the hospital, right? That's right. Vitamin D is important for the health of a baby's bones, teeth, brain development, and immune health. However, while breast milk is considered nutritionally complete, it may still lack an adequate amount of vitamin D because it may not pass through the breast milk well. So breastfed infants should receive 400 international units of vitamin D daily until they are 12 months old, weaned from the breast, and drinking vitamin D whole milk. Partially breastfed or formula-fed infants should receive daily vitamin D, also 400 international units per day, until they drink at least 32 ounces of vitamin D fortified formula per day. Of course, always follow the instructions on the vitamin D bottle on the exact amount the baby should receive each day as formulations may vary. We should also recognize that breastfeeding is not feasible for every mother or family. The good news is that all commercial infant formulas in the United States are regulated by the Food and Drug Administration or FDA. While different manufacturers will vary some of their formula recipes, the FDA requires that all formulas contain the minimum recommended amounts of nutrients that infants need. That's good to know. So it's okay to buy the generic store brands. You should be aware that there are many specialized formulas also available for infants that may be necessary for those with a history of prematurity, low birth weight, or cow milk intolerance. But this decision to start these formulas should be made under the guidance of an infant's primary care provider. It's also important to mix formula correctly according to the instructions on the package. Different brands of formula may also have different mixing ratios, so use the amount of water and number of powder scoops listed on the instructions of the infant formula label. And be sure to use the scoop provided by the manufacturer. Always measure the water first and then add the powder. You bring up a good point, Grace. Infant formulas can be expensive. And as we have experienced in the past couple of years with national shortages in formula, it may be tempting to dilute formula by adding more water and using less powder to extend supply. But this is a dangerous practice that actually can harm the baby. Diluting formula interferes with the nutritional composition and can lead to malnutrition. In addition, too much water can be dangerous for infants by causing electrolyte imbalances that can increase the risk of developing seizures. If you choose to pump and save breast milk, you should use a clean food-grade container which can be stored at room temperature for up to 4 hours, in the refrigerator for 4 days, and in the freezer for about 6 months. For any prepared formula that is not being fed immediately, You should refrigerate it right away until feeding and use within 24 hours. And always discard any formula left in the bottle after your infant has finished the feeding. Feeding, just like sleeping, is a big part of early infancy. Parents often ask, how will they know when their baby is hungry? Infants are great communicators, even though they can't talk. Typically, newborns will let their caregiver know when they are hungry through cues such as rooting or turning their head towards the mother's breast when held, sticking out their tongue, sucking or putting their hands to their mouths. 
For breastfeeding newborns, infants should nurse 8 to 10 times in 24 hours or more if indicated by cueing. Formula-fed infants should be fed every 2 to 3 hours or again, more as indicated by cueing. Exactly right, Grace. Another concern many caregivers have in conjunction with the feeding concerns is knowing how many dirty and wet diapers their infant should have in a day. Yes, that's a question we frequently get in the newborn nursery. I've told parents in the past that it's crucial for the infant to have one bowel movement in the first 24 hours of life, as that's the passage of the meconium. The meconium can be dark, even black in color, and tar-like in consistency. The passage of meconium is a requirement for the baby to be discharged, as it means their digestive system and anatomy are intact. Over the next few days of life, infants will transition to regular stools, which is typically yellow in color and soft. Breastfed infants can have a seedy consistency in their bowel movements. The frequency of stooling can vary from infant to infant. If your newborn is passing soft stool without straining or blood in the stool, they're good to go. But if you see your infant straining during a bowel movement, appearing in pain, or passing hard stool, those may be signs of constipation and a reason to visit your pediatrician. Additionally, if a caregiver notices blood in the stool or completely white stool, they should contract their pediatrician. Along with bowel movements, caregivers should be aware of urine frequency in newborns. Like stooling, we expect at least one wet diaper in the first 24 hours of life to indicate the correct functioning and anatomy of the urinary system. After that, the newborn typically has the same number of wet diapers as days old. So two on day two of life, three on day three, etc. Until five days of life. After day five, infants should have six or more wet diapers per day. Wet diapers are a great indication that your infant is getting enough nutrition. So if there's a sudden drop off in wet diapers, that's definitely something for parents to notice and bring up with their pediatrician. And in terms of color, newborn urine can take on a variety of shades of yellow and may even include orange crystals in the diaper. Those are no cause for concern. Also be aware that for female infants, they may have small amounts of blood-tinged mucus from exposure to maternal hormones. This is completely normal and will go away once the hormones are metabolized. However, if you notice any other blood in your infant's diaper, let your doctor know as soon as possible. That's right, Grace. Let's also quickly talk about infant spit-up. It's quite common for the infants to spit-up because the musculature known as lower esophageal sphincter that separates the esophagus from the stomach is not fully developed. Swallowing air and overfeeding can cause the formula or breast milk to easily come back up the esophagus. To decrease the risk of excess spitting up, it's helpful to keep the baby upright after feeding for about 15 to 30 minutes. However, if the spitting up is more often and more forceful than usual, you should contact your pediatrician immediately to discuss. And of course, any signs of blood or bile, which is a dark green substance in the spit up, should be addressed as soon as possible by having your baby seen in the doctor's office or the emergency room. I think this is a great opportunity to segue into the topic of other concerning signs and symptoms that absolutely cannot be missed or ignored. Let's start with fever. Yes, fever in the newborn is an emergency. In other words, a temperature of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or greater in the first 60 days of life is considered an emergency, and the infant should be seen immediately at the nearest emergency department. 
In these early days of life, do not administer any medication to reduce fever, such as Tylenol, which is acetaminophen, or ibuprofen. These medications may lower the fever temporarily, but disguise a serious underlying infection. Other reasons for the infant to be seen immediately are increased fussiness and on the other extreme, excessive sleepiness or difficulty waking up with extended time unfed. A decrease in urine output may also be a concerning sign that should be evaluated by a medical professional. That brings up the important point that any contact of an infant with an ill individual is a threat. Remember, the newborn's immune system is not fully developed. So, any individual who's feeling ill, has a cough or sore throat, or a fever should refrain from being around the baby. Visitors around the newborn should be encouraged to wear masks, especially during the first two months of life. It's best to keep friendly visits to a minimum in the first two months. Only family members and others there to help should be in the house. While many support people in the newborn's life may want to see the infant, the overall health of the newborn is most important. We recommend that all caretakers of the infant, including parents, to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19, influenza, and staying update with the Tdap vaccine, which protects against pertussis, also known as whooping cough. The wonderful thing about technology these days is we have alternative methods of interactions, such as video or voice calls to stay in touch. That's right. Having a new infant is a very joyous time. But as we mentioned earlier, it can also be very overwhelming and stressful. It's important to be mindful of mood changes that moms who have just delivered may be experiencing, such as episodes of crying, sadness, and anxiety. Yes, these feelings known as baby blues are extremely common and typical within the initial four-week period due to the hormonal shifts and the challenges of taking care of a newborn. However, symptoms lasting greater than four weeks can be a sign of postpartum depression and warrant a maternal visit to her OBGYN or primary care provider. Remember that it's okay to ask for help from others. If the sadness or anxiety, however, begins to prevent the caregiver from taking care of themselves or the baby, or if there are any thoughts of harming themselves or others, the mother, caregiver, or a family member should contact their primary care provider or OBGYN as soon as possible for an appointment. Treatment is key for the safety of both the mother and the child. The new mental health hotline 988 is available 24-7 for support in the meantime. Yes, this is so important to emphasize and normalize conversations regarding mental health. Another important conversation to have with caregivers is car safety, specifically in terms of correct car seat positioning. Exactly right. Caregivers should have a car seat by the day of their newborn's discharge for the ride home. Sometimes, depending on the newborn's gestational age at birth or weight, they may need to do a car seat test while in the hospital to ensure they are able to be safe on the journey home. And for the specific car seat type, it should be rear-facing and placed in the back seat of the vehicle. Their child should remain in the rear-facing seat until they meet the maximum height and weight limits according to the manufacturer. At that point, they can transition to a forward-facing car seat, but still placed in the back seat. That transition to forward-facing car seats usually is after two years of age, so not something new parents have to consider right away. 
Well, Dr. Sharma, we've covered quite a few things today that are important for parents to consider during the first week of bringing their newborn home. But it's time to wrap up our episode. Let's quickly summarize the main points we discussed today. Sure thing. I will get us started. Remember, the safest position for the newborn is on its back to sleep. Ensure environmental safety with caregivers. Avoid smoke exposures and infectious disease exposure. Listen to your baby's cues regarding feeding and don't forget your vitamin D supplementation. Babies pass dark, thick meconium in the first 24 hours, then transition to yellow soft stool over the course of the next few days of life. Frequency can vary, but watch for signs of constipation, including straining, discomfort, or blood in the stool. In the first five days of life, babies should have as many wet diapers as they are days old. After five days, they should have six or more wet diapers a day, which is a sign of adequate breast milk or formula intake. The umbilical cord will fall off on its own in one to two weeks. Let your doctor know if you are worried about the appearance of the cord site. Fevers of 100.4 or greater are an emergency. Get to your nearest emergency room as soon as possible. Baby blues are normal, but let your OBGYN or primary care provider know if you're unable to take care of yourself or your child. Call 988 for immediate support. While we discuss many things today, there are many equally important considerations that will be discussed with your baby's pediatrician. So be sure to keep the appointment with your baby's pediatrician, ideally scheduled within one to two days from discharge from the hospital. And as always, reach out to your pediatrician for any questions or concerns. That's what we are here for. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharma. This was such an informative episode. An additional thanks to Dr. Alice Little-Caldwell and Dr. Rebecca Yang, who provided peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember, all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is also available for this episode. Please refer to our show notes and website for the link. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.